Good evening. You're on with attorneys Vincent Davis and Daniel Noten. And this is Divorce and Family Law Talk Radio Show. The effects of divorce, especially when the divorce involves children, last far longer than the divorce process itself. The consequences of marital dissolution can affect all members of the family and can last a lifetime. You've got questions, we've got answers. Family law legal experts answer your questions about divorce, kids, money, property, custody, spousal support, and much more. Good evening, all. It is Wednesday, uh, the end of December. We're fast approaching the new year. Dan, are you there with us this evening? I am, Vince. How are you tonight? Good evening. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Um, thank you for joining me this evening. Uh, you know, I got, I heard some bad news, heard some bad news just before the, uh, we went on the air this evening. I heard that Debbie Reynolds passed away and her daughter, um, just passed away the, the day before. Yeah. Carrie Fisher just passed away the day before. Um, Wow, did you hear that? Uh, yes, I just came across that moments ago. That's amazing and uh, so sad, sad and sorry to hear that. It does show you the effect that family has on people. Yeah, I mean, you know, I thought I had problems this holiday season. That's oh, nothing my. compared to what that family must be going through. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a real tragedy for them. I'm happy to see that uh, Debbie Reynolds had such a successful and long life, so that was good. Right, right. So, Dan, today we're going to be talking about uh, property. And um, I have some questions that were sent in by our um, listeners. Let me see if I can pull those up. Did you get a copy of them sent to you? I do. I do have them in front of me. Okay. Let's see if I can pull them up. Yes, here they are. Let's jump right into the questions, Dan. The first question is, how do I know what court has jurisdiction over my property? Okay, well, jurisdiction is a very big and broad issue, um, but I'm going to focus just on the family law side of it for the sake of this um, and the uh, the main area of jurisdiction we'd be dealing with in family law is called subject matter jurisdiction. In uh, in divorce cases, for example, or dissolution of marriage, it's sometimes called. In divorce cases, um, the uh, individual who's filing needs to have six months residence in the state and three months residence in the county, and that requirement is a jurisdictional. A requirement um, by statute. Now, jurisdiction means the power of the court to act. So the the law says that if a person has been a resident of California for six months or more, then they um, could um, have they could be party to a divorce case, and then the California court would have jurisdiction over their property to divide their property or to award uh, uh, to confirm separate property to them to divide community property. Now that's one type of of jurisdiction. There are other types. Uh, One unusual
old type of jurisdiction, which uh, doesn't deal so much with property, but once in a while it does, not so often in the divorce context. It's called in rem. Those are Latin words, in rem, meaning literally in the thing, jurisdiction or power in the, that resides in the thing itself. And uh, you might see that in cases, more often in criminal cases, but you do see it occasionally in uh, the power of a court to deal with property and it's exclusively within its jurisdiction. For example, real estate. Um, if um, a parcel of real estate is in Alabama, California doesn't have any power to be changing title to Alabama properties. And um, that is in part because of the nature of in-rem jurisdiction. California does have the right to do other things pertaining to ordering someone to transfer title a California resident to transfer title to an Alabama property, for example. But um, that would be a different matter. Now, um, what court has jurisdiction over the property is, of course, where the, the uh, individual is residing or where one of the individuals is residing. If you're going to ask the California court to divide property and uh, only one party is a resident of California, you are going to have some difficulty getting jurisdiction over the other party if they're a resident of another state. In that case, when we have that kind of a situation and the California court can't exercise jurisdiction over both parties, um, the California court can still do um, a divisible divorce, is what it's called. It can grant a divorce but not rule over property. And that's uh, from the Williams versus North Carolina case in the Supreme Court of the U.S. that allows that kind of of a decree. But um, so the the court that is going to have jurisdiction is where the parties live. Now sometimes this comes up because someone has been a resident of California. Say, a wife is here in California, husband was a resident of California for oh years, but then he moves off to Oklahoma, and he's been there for maybe a year. In that situation, California has lost power over adjudicating his property interests, um, and you'd have to bring that case on the property issues in Oklahoma. Um, did you have thoughts about this question, Vince? No, you know, I, I was just listening to you, Dan, and it seems like every week I learn something new from just listening to your answers to these questions oh, things i didn't know at all or things that i had or things that i had forgotten about i haven't heard the term in rem jurisdiction probably since law school <laughs> since law school <laughs> well it does happen uh, but we see in rem jurisdiction in the uccjea in the uniform child custody jurisdiction enforcement act that um, that is an in rem statute where it has in rem power over the child that is um, a product of the marriage but we don't see it too often in property other than what i've just spoken of you know out of state okay well here's a related question um dan what is considered property in family law court proceedings <clears throat> boy this is a never ending question because um because of technology and uh, changing notions of rights in, uh, between people, this is constantly changing, and, and there are new areas uh, developing all the time. Um, of course, we all know that property and family court proceedings will 
uh, consists of the usual personal property. Now, when I say personal property, that's just a legal term meaning um, tangible type property um, other than real estate. Now, that type of property is cars, for example, or insurance, stock cert uh, certificates or stock rights, uh, stock account rights, investments. Um, those kinds of things are, are obvious personal property that the family court has power over in um, divorce, separation, annulments, uh, those kinds of cases. The more interesting cases um, are, are where there are uh, inchoate rights or rights that are not quite so clear um, or that are still developing. Some time ago, when I first started practicing, uh, pensions were not considered to be um, property or community property in family court proceedings. And uh, there was a famous case called the French case, French, marriage of French, uh, out of the California Supreme Court, where they had held that you could not have an expectancy in a non-vested pension. So, for example, a gentleman who might have a 19 years of his 20-year pension in the military could get divorced and walk away with the whole pension because it hadn't vested yet under the French ruling. That was turned upside down um, by the Supreme Court of California in the Brown case, where Brown uh, held, marriage of Brown held, that pensions were being were, would be divisible even though they had not fully vested yet. And uh, there have been developments since then, of course, too. Other things we don't think about too often, but our property definitely are options. If you have an option to buy real estate or an option to exercise a lease, uh, uh, that is can be property, can be community property if it was acquired during the marriage, if the based on the inception of title concept. Or royalties. Royalties are, say, book royalties, film royalties, that kind of thing can uh, and often is held to be community property um, depending on when it was accrued or accumulated or earned. Um, and naturally, businesses are property too. That's personal property again. Um, business interests of all kinds can, are personal property and can be di divided and and, uh, and can be community. Uh, then uh, real estate naturally can be, uh, while it can be held in various ways, it can also be divided by the family court, and often is every day. It's divided by family courts, um, whether it's uh, community property or separate property or uh, other holdings. Um, and uh, some more unusual things, you know, issues come up in, for example, sick leave. Uh, sick leave, I believe there are cases holding sick leave is can be community property um, if it's the kind, uh, if it is not lost uh, when when it's not used. And um, insurance can be divided in family court proceedings. Now, we are used to the usual life insurance, uh, whole life or um, universal life, but term insurance, you know, almost like renting insurance for a year, term insurance, uh, is, while it's often not considered community property, in a practical way, it can be considered community property in the sense of whether it's whether you can replace it if there's a value to the in, to the insurance because you're now at a position where you can't get new term insurance that can be divisible and um, 
let's see, some other, oh yes, um, uh, for example, buyouts in retirement plans. Every once in a while, a company might um, have, a, have a separation a lump sum payment to an employee, and then uh, we'll often have a battle about whether that that buyout, that separation buyout or, or separation lump sum payment, whether that's community or separate property. And that will be determined by the intent of the company when it granted the buyout as to uh, its policy, whether it was intending to replace past longevity interests that have accrued or future, uh, uh, whether it's reimbursing for future lost income of the employee. So many pitch battles happen over that kind of situation, which is considered property. I have a question for you. What about lawsuits or workers' uh, I, compensation cases? Okay. Um, personal injury lawsuits, for example, uh, are can be adjudicated as community property. But my understanding of the law on this is that the court has discretion as to the percentage, that it, has, it doesn't have to be a fixed... 50-50% in a personal injury case. Um, workers' comp, my, uh, my latest um, information of workers' comp is that it's the area's in a bit of a, a turbulent um, uh, situation. Uh, courts have held that workers' comp interests are the property of the injured spouse, the employee's spouse. Other courts have, however, have divided workers' comp benefits. So workers' comp, in any case of workers' comp, I think you have to stop and look very carefully at, uh, at the extent of the injury, You know whether it's for future lost income, uh, how much of the um, compensation being paid was for uh, uh, lost benefits or lost income during the marriage, during the coverture period, they call that. Uh, and, and there, I think the cases are are a little more ambiguous than they are in the in the personal injury area. If we're talking about civil lawsuits, um, you know, property lawsuits, what have you, those I think are much clearer and more clean that they are community property or are separate property, just de determined by when the dates of the um, cause of action arose um, or the date of the loss being incurred. So that's a, a bit of a fluid area, particularly in workers' comp, in my view. Any particular family code sections on workers' comp or personal injury lawsuits? Um, there are definitely, but I can't uh, I can't pull them right out of out of memory. <clears throat> okay. There is a uh, Fair workers' enough. code dealing directly with personal injury. Alrighty, let's go to the next question. What is the difference between community and separate property? And the related question well, is, what is quasi-community property? Okay, um, let's start off with quasi-community property and community property. First of all, community property is defined as property that is accumulated 
or acquired during marriage. There's a presumption under Family Code 760, I think it is, that any property acquired during marriage is presumed to be community property. That can be rebutted um, by showing various things that would make it separate property. And, of course, separate property would be property that was acquired before marriage or during marriage by inheritance or uh, gift or device, which is a fancy word of saying um, a gift of real estate, I believe. <clears throat> and any property that was acquired post-separation, those would be separate properties. So that shows us the the, the uh, division between community and separate property. Now, quasi-community property, or sometimes quasi-community property it's called, that property is property that would have been community property if at the time of acquisition the owner, or the person acquiring it, was a resident of California or had been a resident of California. So how this commonly happens is that an out-of-state individual with property moves to California. Uh, here's an example. is you move a, a man moves from Michigan, a man or a woman moved from Michigan and moved to California, live here six months, and they've had some, say they had some rental property back in Michigan. That, uh, on a divorce of that couple, that unfortunate couple, the California court can make orders pertaining to the Michigan real estate as quasi-community property, and that, not just as real estate, but they could do that with um, cars that were acquired in Michigan or uh, royalty uh, interests that were acquired in Michigan, that kind of thing. So California has the power to, to deem that any of the property that is community or would have been community if they had been residents in California at the time it was acquired, they can divide all that, and uh, and they do often. Um, there are a, um, a couple interesting issues that start popping up when we're talking about quasi-community property or property acquired before moving to California. Uh, with regard to a separate property that was acquired in that other state, I think that the property rights as determined by that other state determine the rights in separate property. And there are some curious little issues about um, if a breach of fiduciary has happened with property in, acquired in another state, then you have to apply the laws of that other state with regard to breach of fiduciary as to determining how um, that, whether the breach of fiduciary has occurred before the parties moved to California. That, that you don't see happen very often, but it's something to keep in mind because a breach of fiduciary is rather fashionable in divorce cases these days. <clears throat> um, breach of fiduciary duty? Breach of fiduciary duty, yes. So if if a spouse commits either actual or constructive fraud against the other spouse, um, you know, by, for example, um, misusing their property or hiding their property or making gifts of their property, um, or um, what are the consequences? The same thing with community. Well, we have several statutes that have come into into effect. Um, uh, 721, 1100, uh, etc., 2100 of the Family Code, uh, and they basically say that the the parties are required to be scrupulously honest with each other because, being husband and wife um, in in a marriage, they are fiduciaries to each other. They owe to each other 
the highest duty of honesty, the same duty that your lawyer owes to the client or that uh, your investment banker owes to you or your trustee in a, um, in a trust owes to you, the duty to be honest. So if one party takes advantage of the other party, uh, either intentionally or sometimes just by virtue of, of the circumstances, even accidentally, then that could be deemed to be a breach of fiduciary and a constructive fraud as well. And um, in that situation, the court is required to um, um, restore the parties to where they would have been if the fraud had not occurred and uh, to sanction the party. And they can't sanction the other, the wrongdoing party uh, to make sure that doesn't happen again. So uh, basically the idea is to restore you back to the position you were in. Attorney's fees a, a part of the sanction? Well, they definitely can be um, under 721. 721 is a sanction statute uh, where a party can be sanctioned for doing things improperly. And uh, uh, attorney's fees can be paid from that. Uh, that would be part of the part of the loss that a, a person would uh, suffer from it. Now, um, community and separate property are not forever uh, in that state. They're not always community and they're not always separate. You know, people do transmute um, community into separate and separate into community sometimes. So uh, even though we've defined them as, you know, community being 50-50, separate being owned by that party, uh, changes do occur by transmutation or commingling or the merging of community uh, efforts, you know, in businesses. So there is a, a well, spectrum. Well, then Dan, give us, tell us what do you mean by uh, transmutation? Well, a transmutation is a, a change in ownership or character of property. If a property is um, community, and uh, or let's let's take the easy case, a property is separate. Say, wife owns um, 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 an apartment house and she wants to make a gift to her husband of the apartment house, she can transmute that by um, giving him a deed to the property. <clears throat> and uh, um, that would change the ownership uh, of the property or it would change the character of the property. And that can be a valid transmutation. Um, the, uh, the biggest thing that's required for a transmutation to be valid is that it needs to be in writing and signed by the party who's uh, losing the interest. And it has to um, be clear that there there is an intent to change the ownership or character. Um, that wasn't always the case. Before January 1st of 1985, you could make oral, verbal transmutations. The uh, And those transmutations that were done way back then, if, there, if a party's getting divorced now, the court can still recognize a, a verbal transmutation that occurred before 1985. Now, those are gradually phasing out with age, but that can happen. Well, Dan, tell me something. I'm going to tell you about a fact pattern that I frequently see. And give me a transmutation analysis from the wife's perspective and then one from the husband's perspective. Husband and wife are married, and during the marriage, they buy a home together. Um, about 15 years into the marriage, 
uh, they decide to refinance the property. And for whatever reason, somebody requires the wife to quick claim the deed, the property to the husband because wife doesn't work. And to do the refi, the property has to be in the husband's name. So the wife executes a deed giving the property 100% to the husband. Five years goes by, they decide to get a divorce. Husband claims, oh, the property, the family home is all mine. Gave it to me five years ago when we refinanced the house. So give me the wife's argument and then give me the husband's argument. Well, let's see. The wife is the one who who signed the deed to the husband in this hypo, right? Yes. Okay. So um, the, uh, the wife's argument would be that... Um, undue influence was exercised upon her that she uh, didn't understand the transaction well, that husband gained an unfair advantage from it. And um, if uh, if it is shown that by virtue of a transfer or a transmutation, even if it's a valid one, if by virtue of that um, someone gained an unfair advantage, then there's a presumption of undue influence that has occurred. Now, that puts the burden on to husband that he now has to prove to the judge that the that everything was fair and square about that deal that um, um, she did it knowingly and she understood the legal ramifications and um, maybe she got some other advantage in return for it he has to show that it was fairly done and and she wasn't uh, taken advantage of if he can't do that then the court can't set aside that transfer and treat it as though it were, had never happened, that it was community property. Uh, now, husband's point of view is, um, and there have been many cases that are uh, upholding that undue influence uh, argument. For example, Haynes is one very famous case. Uh, husband's point of view um, would be that, uh, his argument would be that wife uh, was um, knew exactly what she was doing. She made a meaningful decision about it. Uh, she had uh, experience in real estate and she knew the significance of signing a deed. Um, she intended to give him that property out and out. It wasn't just uh, to help the financing. Um, and if he can prove that, then there's a case called Matthews, which uh, upholds of that kind of, of point of view that it was a valid transfer um, if it was knowing and properly done. Uh, so that would be husband's best argument. In that kind of a situation, I'd probably prefer to be representing wife because I think she probably has a better shot at setting that aside than husband does of preserving it. I think the courts are reluctant to uphold that um, the position where she's losing something just basically by accident or because some, some real estate broker or banker suggested it would be better if um, her her credit was off of the property. You know, I was involved in a case a few years ago where the trial court ruled in favor of my client, who was the husband. And the key point that the judge made was that when the wife signed the deed, the husband, we provided evidence that the wife 
was given other consideration for getting off the deed. And in that particular case, the husband gave the wife another piece of real property where he signed a deed to her. He wasn't claiming any community interest in that property because he knew that he had given the property to her. But during the divorce, the wife and her attorney came up with a, uh, you know, a brilliant legal strategy that didn't work. She would not only keep the piece of real property that the husband gave them, but also get half of the family home, claiming that um, she was not uh, fairly treated and unduly influenced in make, signing that uh, deed over. Well, that is interesting, and it sounds in some ways much like a uh, post-marital agreement, and you could attack it on the same ground you could a post-marital agreement, uh, which is that um, there wasn't sufficient information given, insufficient disclosure, or lack of voluntary action. Um, but uh, uh, those are always difficult cases, and they can go either way. All right, Dan, moving to our next question. What is the date of separation, and why is that important? Well, date of separation um, comes up in either a divorce or a legal separation case. <clears throat> and uh, date of separation is the date when, um, by subjective intent and objective actions, uh, one of the parties expresses to the other for the last time that it's really over, that the relationship is really over this time. <clears throat> and um, and I say the last time because maybe it has been said before and maybe they've reconciled, but this is the last time. And um, when I mention subjective and objective actions is because they have to intend and express that it's, um, that it's finished and they have to act uh, outwardly as though it's finished as well. You know, there was a case where uh, a uh, doctor, I think it was a doctor, um, agreed with his wife that it was over, that they were separating, and yet he maintained for years uh, the appearance to society that they were still together. And because of that, um, that lack of objective manifestation of the separation, the court later held that they were not separated because it was more of a hidden separation and ruled in favor of wife. Um, the, uh, the importance of the date of separation and why it is so often argued about is because that is the cutoff date for the acquisition of community property. And it's the cutoff date for the um, accumulation of debts as community property too. So um, my earnings up until the date we separate, my earnings are going to be community property. And the day after I separate from my wife, they're going to be separate, my separate property, my earnings. And same with hers. <clears throat> debts that I accumulate up until the date of separation are going to be community property, unless, of course, they were done on the eve of separation for the purpose of cheating the wife. But those are going to be uh, community property up to the date of separation normally. But afterwards, debts that are incurred, incurred by either spouse are going to be separate property. Um, it, uh, the date of separation 
strongly influences the length of spousal support duration that a spouse can get. Um, I've seen cases where uh, one party was contending they were married for five years and the other was contending they were married for 15 years. Now, when the judge makes a ruling as to five years or 15 years, that's going to influence the judge with regard to how long the spousal support would be. There's a, a rule of thumb in, in shorter marriages, and when I say shorter, maybe you know a couple years to up to eight years or so. There's a, a rule of thumb that lawyers often use that support goes for the for half the length of the marriage, and if the judge rules it's a five-year marriage, then two and a half years of support. If it's a 15-year marriage, then the judge is looking at it like a long-term marriage, applying the 4320 factors. Um, and certainly not looking at terminating it after you know a short period of time. Uh, that could go on much longer, the support. So those are big factors. Uh, how this impacts people on a day-to-day -day basis, the date of separation, <clears throat> is the division of bank accounts, for example, are determined by the balances at date of separation and who's responsible for the funds after that. Um, may be uh, imputed to the party who is uh, managing the bank account. And the pension uh, accrual rights are very important. Um, the date of separation is the cutoff date for community accruals in pensions. So um, that uh, up until that date, the, the pension contributions and accruals will be community property, and after the date of separation, pension accruals are going to be separate property of the, of the employee uh, spouse or the employee soon-to-be ex-spouse. Uh, same thing with businesses. Uh, that gets much more exotic, too, in business division. Um, the, uh, the earnings of the business up until date of separation would normally be community property if it's a community property business, and after, they're going to be separate property. There have been what about the go ahead. What about some what about the date of separation as to real property? Is there any effect? Uh yes. Uh date of separation uh is going to have an effect on uh, on a number of things. It's going to have an effect on more Marsden um um reimbursements and uh that is going to affect the value of the property on another score um, a little more indirectly. Um, on um, who is paying the uh, principal interest taxes and insurance on the mortgage or the trustee on the property, um, date of separation will have an impact there and accrual of things called Epstein credits for reimbursement of um, principal interest taxes and insurance would come into play, too, on real estate. Okay, very good. You were about to say something, Dan? Oh, oh yes. On separation, we had a real flurry of, of uh, intrigue here the last six months or so about the Davis case out of the California Supreme Court. Uh, Davis basically held, marriage of Davis, basically held that uh, where in a case where husband and wife had decided to be separated, yet continued to live in the same house after they had decided that they were separated. 
um, the court ruled in that case that they could not be separated, that actually by law, continuing to cohabit together in the same residence would would disqualify them from being um, from being separated for this purpose. Now, I think there's been some statutory enactments um, since the Davis case was handed down, and that was only, oh, four or five months ago. Uh, and I believe the statute, the legislature is in the process of nullifying the Davis holding. Uh, I can't tell you the exact status of that right now, but I, in that kind of a situation where the parties have, for various reasons, continued to live together, even though they're not in the marital way, um, you'd have to stop and check the, the new statutory uh, developments. Why? What do you think the rationale for the Supreme Court, um, what was that rationale in the uh, Davis case? Well, they were looking at, at uh, a split of opinion. You know, one court was going one way on this issue and another was going in another way. But I think the rationale is that if the parties are still residing together, that itself is a strong indicia, a strong indication that they are still acting as husband and wife. And I think the court may have wanted a more bright line for determining um, separation. They wanted a, a more clear, easily determined um, way of determining whether people were separated. Uh, and the parties living in the same house together was that bright line. And why do you think the uh, the legislature has moved to overrule Davis? Well, because um, views of lawyers, not unlike myself, you know, who have been in this situation many times, seeing couples who were living together, um, uh, sleeping in different rooms, uh, pressed by the fact that real estate is so high these days that you know parties can't afford to just go out and buy another house. Uh, if they were having a hard time with the finances in the one house, having two makes it even twice, more than twice as difficult. So many times um, spouses who have clearly decided to end their marriages and, and uh, stopped all marital relationships, nonetheless, they still would continue living in the house because one of them couldn't afford to move out yet. And they're waiting for maybe the progress of the divorce division uh, or assets coming from the divorce to um, fund their being able to move out. So uh, as a practical consideration, a lot of us hated to see um, spouses in that situation ruled to not be separated. And we are waiting for the legislature to finalize that new statute, or do you think well, they have yeah, already? Yeah. I think that it's been passed, but I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure it's been. Uh, we have an operative date yet. I, I think the last information I had was that it was passed, but at this moment I can't guarantee that's the case. I just know that the Davis case is very um, um, vulnerable at this moment, and I, I actually mm -hmm. think it has mm -hmm. passed. All right. Moving to the next question. What are the five main methods of property division when you're getting divorced? Well, um, 
this typically arises, this kind of question typically arises when we're dividing the house. That's the most common way that you see this happening. <clears throat> so um, the most uh, frequent one, the most common method, is in-kind division. Um, if you had a couple properties, you know, one spouse might take one house, another may take the other house. Uh, you frequently see that the um, spouses, one will get one car, another another car. Um, of course, uh, if you have money in a bank account, you can divide money in kind because it's fungible, no problem. And um, just in-kind division is dividing up the value of, of the property and each party getting half of it. You know, when you have items that are either fungible, divisible that way, or that can be equally offset. And uh, by use of an equalization payment, even uh, items that are not equal can be made equal. For example, uh, let's say the equity in his car that he drives is $10,000 and the equity in her car is 15000 He can pay her an equalization payment of $2,500 and the parties are equal. Now, that's an in-kind division. The second way is selling and dividing the property. And this is probably more common in the house situation um, most of the time. And that is um, if neither party can buy out or if neither is inclined to buy out the other party, uh, then the property would be sold and the proceeds would be divided. And the disadvantage of that, of course, is that now you're having to pay you know, perhaps 8% brokers and sales costs to uh, sell that house just to be able to divide it. Um, and uh, another way, of course, is to do a buyout with a house. Um, if there's a lot of equity in the in the house and, and say, the husband has real good credit, uh, he might, and a good income, he might want to uh, say there's $400,000 uh, equity in the property and the house is worth 600000 he would owe the wife 300000 So he might go borrow $300,000 on the house, keep the house, and uh, give the three hundred to the wife. So that's another way of doing it. <clears throat> um, and then we've talked about assigning the assets and an order equalizing payment uh, in our first example. Another way is that um, you could convert the title um, Let's assume for a second that uh, a, uh, a an investment real estate property, say an apartment house, is held in joint tenancy or is held as community property. And those are two possibilities. And uh, say the parties get along so well, despite their divorce, that they want to continue being um, partners or joint venturers, that kind of arrangement. Um, and that's a rare case, but it does happen. In that kind of a situation, the parties could divide uh, could divide the property by converting it into tenancy in common property, and assign a percentage interest in the property. Um, joint tenancy is is by law a 50/50 arrangement. A tenancy in common could be the 50/50 arrangement too. It could be a simple division by that. Or it could be any other percentage. You know, the husband, if he had other reasons that he was got more equity, maybe he'd get 60% and she could get 40. Or maybe wife would get 70 and he'd get 30%. Tenancy in common, you can do that in the deeds, and that would be enforceable as far as determining the ownership interest. And then uh, a technique for 
um, dividing property that we don't see too often um, anymore. It does come up, and that is reservation of jurisdiction. <clears throat> now, I say that because in the old days, you know, 30 years ago, um, in uh, pension pensions were divided very commonly by simply reserving jurisdiction over the pension until later on when the party retired, and then the parties would deal with it. Um, the court does still reserve jurisdiction over uh, situations where it needs to, but I, I don't think it happens as often as it used to. Reserving jurisdiction just means that instead of dividing this property now at court or, or now in the marital settlement agreement, uh, we're going to reserve the power of the court to divide it later, and um, usually because of some event that's going to happen later. So the disadvantage of that, of course, is you're putting off the unpleasant division until a later date. The advantage is that you're putting it off perhaps to a date when other events have determined the interest more clearly or when the parties are getting along better um, and they can resolve the issue more readily. Um, <clears throat> this, um, there is a case um, where this kind of thing has happened where the court ruled reservation of jurisdiction. I thought it was kind of a curious one. Uh, husband and wife owned a, um, a business um, a property and... Uh, well, they owned a business. I think it was. I'm thinking it was a bar or something like that. And the value of it was high if the husband would go out and and renew his option to uh, renew the lease. But he refused to do that or declined to do that because the lease was going to run soon, uh, right after the divorce trial, and he wanted it appraised lower. And so, without the renewed lease, the property was worth less. Uh, the court in that case held that the husband, the court would reserve jurisdiction over it, and the wife could revisit the question um, upon the husband renewing the lease. So uh, reservation of jurisdiction can be used artfully in certain circumstances when we don't know the exact events that are going to occur. Very good, very good. Let me pull up the next question. We touched upon the subject earlier. You mentioned this word, but what is commingling? Commingling is where funds are hopelessly intermixed such that they can't be directly traced to separate property or community property. That is, where, um, pro where funds which were in part, um, some of the funds were community and some of the funds were separate. Um, records haven't been kept sufficiently that the parties now can't trace directly back to where the separate property was. When that happens, the law says that all the funds will be determined to be community. So that, of course, can be a serious consequence depending on the size of the, of the fund. <clears throat> and um, in complicated cases, where parties are trying to track uh, property back uh, to to separate property so that they can get their separate property out of the divorce. Um, in that situation, if they can't trace past a certain point uh, to get to that proof, then uh, they're 
stuck with it being deemed by the court to be community property. So it does convert it to community property. There are a couple ways of Can doing tracing. Can you give tracing. us an example? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's say that um, wife has uh, $10,000 that uh, she's put into an account, and uh, then the parties after that uh, have been putting their paychecks into it uh, for years, say. Uh, of course, all the paychecks after date of marriage are community property. So when the when the funds now, uh, you know, are spent from time to time, uh, then a party looks back to try to prove that that $10,000 was hers. You know, the husband could say, no, um, that $10,000 of hers was spent on uh, such and such that we did a year ago. And so that that money has has long gone so it's all community property that's difficult now for anybody to prove what the character was <clears throat> a, a common situation is where um say the husband goes out and buys a uh, uh an investment property say he takes 40,000 out of the joint account uh, an account that was in joint uh, joint names both names takes 40,000 out of that account and uses that as a down payment for an investment property for real estate. And then um, at the divorce occurring, he says, uh, he says, no, I had, that's not a community property uh, parcel of real estate that I bought. It isn't, that that 40000 wasn't community property. That 40000 was separate property. It, it was because I had 40000 in that account before. So to prove that the real estate is his, or that the down payment on the real estate is his, he has to trace back in, through those accounts, through each tra transaction of that account, usually done with an accountant, to show that that 40000 was there and available to him at the time that he bought the property. And what's more, that he intended, when he bought the property, to use the 40000 that was separate property in that commingled account. Now, that's what we call direct tracing, where you're trying to go transaction by transaction um, to show, through the account, to show that that separate property was there at the time of the purchase. There is another type of tracing, and that's called family expense tracing. And the whole principle of family expense tracing is <clears throat> that to, to prove that um, the community property funds were exhausted at the time of the acquisition of the separate um, property. In this case, where husband has gone and bought a property with $40,000 down, he might want to, to prove to the court that um, all of the funds, uh, all of the community funds in the account were expended on community expenses. And that's because there's a normal presumption that um, community expenses are paid with community um, community property funds. So if he can prove to the court that those funds were separate property in the account at the time he did that transaction, then he may be able to get that 40000 back. How would he trace it? Well, um, and there's two principles in family expense tracing. One is that you could trace from... The, uh, from the inception of the separate property all the way through to the, the date. Um, and the other is 
I believe it's tracing the whole length of the marriage. Um, but the tracing is basically that he would have to show, check by check, that the expenses of the family, the community expenses during the marriage, um, exhausted, used up all of the community property funds that were there. Say that uh, the, the parties earned uh, $50,000 total a year and um, and were spending $60,000 a year. Then during that period of time, if you can use that, that period of time, if that's the applicable period, that would show that the entire amount contributed from their earnings, the community earnings, were expended. So anything left in that account would be separate property, if you can show that at the beginning it started off with separate property. Very good. Interesting. Would you need a CPA to help you do this? Unfortunately, normally, yes. And not only a CPA, but someone who is very familiar with divorce proceedings. So, and it's very expensive to hire CPAs to do it, but uh, there are people who do. And uh, that would be normally expected by the court um, to prove that tracing. <clears throat> okay, let me find our next question. Um, do you have a, going back to that tracing issue, do you have an, a, an accountant you like to use when you're faced with these issues? Um, there are a couple accountants uh, that I've uh, seen successfully uh, do this. Um, should I mention names? Yes, please do. Well, I'm, I think Mark Kaplan in San Diego is very good. And um, Karen, Karen Casino uh, was involved in this area for a long time in the San Diego area. Um, those are the names that come to mind at the moment. Very good, very good. Okay, so how do I end up commingling with my spouse now that we are, how do I end commingling with my spouse now that we are getting divorced? Well, uh, the way you end it is by getting a separate account, an account in your name alone. <clears throat> and that is if you have ongoing uh, funds that are that are coming to you after the separation now, you want to put those funds into a separate account in your name alone. Now, that's uh, pretty obvious. Uh, the more difficult situation is, of course, if those funds are commingled and uh, then and uh, being hopelessly commingled, then you'd have to have a court decree what the ownership in the accounts are, and that is going through that procedure we've just talked about, you know, and uh, and trying the question about the tracing. But the simple answer is put your earnings in a separate account after date of separation. I guess that's the easiest way to do it, huh? Yeah. <clears throat> that will avoid uh, right. questions. Um, if a property has a joint title presumption, who would get the rights to this property? Well, the community gets the right to it if it's a joint title presumption. Um, and I think that this question is probably calling for uh, Family Code Section, I think it's 2580, which is states that if <clears throat> if a property is held in joint title, 
um, then the 2640 rights apply to it. So the whole idea of this uh, is that uh, parties during marriage often put titles to real estate, for example, in joint names, and yet maybe they've contributed separate property into that into the purchase of the real estate or as a pay down on the mortgage of the real estate. And the legislature has felt that it was unfair to the contributing spouse, the one who paid separate property into the house, to not get that back. So um, after a little battle um, between the courts of appeal and the Supreme Court in the Buell case and uh, Lucas case <clears throat> and uh, that area, the legislature took it upon itself to pass this law, which is now the 2640 provision of the family code. And that says that the party who who, is, who made the separate property contribution at the time of divorce gets that separate property contribution back if they can prove that they did that. If they can trace back to that 2640 uh, contribution, they should get it back off the top of the sale proceeds of, for example, the house. Um, but the joint title presumption uh, makes it so, such that the balance after that payback on the 2640 is divided 50-50. So how it often looks to the parties is that if uh, a down payment was made by one spouse, that spouse gets that down payment back off the top without interest, I might add. But then the parties end up dividing the appreciation, typically, uh, that happened in the house. Now, that's an abbreviated way of putting it, but that's basically how it happens. The other side of this that is kind of curious, the question calls for, is the joint title presumption if we're not talking divorce or separation. On death, the joint title presumption is quite different if we're not talking divorce. Uh, that's when the Lucas case kicks in, and um, the Lucas case held by the Supreme Court of California says that if a party has... has um, um, taken separate property and put it into a house in joint uh, title, in joint tenancy, then on the death of the spouse, the other spouse gets the whole property unless the, um, the spouse who contributed can prove there was an agreement or an understanding otherwise. And Lucas is still valid law um, on death situations. So it's something to keep in mind. Lucas is still valid law? It is in uh, the probate setting, yeah. <laughs> not not oh. in the family law. It's been superseded now in the family law. Right, right, right. Well, Dan, we're coming to the end of our show. We have about 30 seconds left. Um, next week, I'd like to talk a little bit more about property and about the division of debt. A lot of people always talk about property and the division of assets. So let's talk a little bit about debt, and then let's talk about a little bit about how you actually go step-by-step step into dividing a, for example, a family-owned business, um, you know, from the different corporations, that type of thing. Dan, okay. I'd like to thank you for joining me again this week on the show, and we will see everyone next week on the radio. Good night. Good night.